The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Window Nation is the presenting sponsor of this show. Right now, Window Nation is offering 50% off all windows and window styles with no money down, no payments, and no interest for two full years. Call them at 866-90-NATION. Head to windownation.com. Mention my name. You'll get a free in-home estimate. We're going to get to it pretty quickly here in this opening segment. Stanford Steve is going to jump on with us uh, and talk Drake May and Jaden Daniels primarily. Uh, That would be Stanford Steve Coughlin of the ESPN Scott Van Pelt Show. Uh, Stanford Steve is a college football guy. I would consider him to be a college football Expert. So we will get into the two quarterbacks that I think will be available at number two for Washington, assuming that Chicago trades Justin Fields and selects Caleb Williams. We'll get his thoughts on Caleb Williams as well and some of the other quarterbacks. Plus, Stanford Steve knows Cliff Kingsbury pretty well, so he'll weigh in on that. Um, and I'll probably ask him about the new college football playoff format, which was voted on yesterday. And then after Stanford Steve, this is going to be a pleasure for me uh, as much as any guest that I've had on in some time. John Lucas is going to be on this show. John Lucas was a four-year player at Maryland in the 1970s for Lefty Drizel. He is one of the greatest players to ever play at Maryland, one of the greatest players to ever play in the ACC. He's one of the greatest tennis players to ever play uh, in the ACC. Uh, NBA career, NBA head coaching career, NBA front office executive career. Lucas has had an incredible life, and he is going to jump on with me to share his thoughts and memories of playing for Lefty Drizel and of his lifelong friendship with his college coach. I am looking forward to that. It's been a long time since we've had uh, John Lucas on the show. I don't think he's ever been on the podcast. I don't think he has. Uh, He was on the radio show years ago. Tommy and I were doing a show at Redskins Park from our Redskins Park studio. And it was during a commercial break that I walked outside just to get some fresh air. And in the parking lot and walking towards the front door were John Lucas and Jamarcus Russell. 
You know, John Lucas had um, an addiction issue throughout his playing career and then did such incredible work and continues, I believe, to this very day doing uh, incredible work with his rehab center. uh, And he's helped so many athletes with addiction issues over the years. And Jamarcus Russell was somebody he was helping at the time, and he was bringing him to visit the Skins. Uh, That was, I think, 2011. It would have been before RG3, so it was either 2010 or 2011, I'm guessing. And when I saw him, uh, I noticed Jamarcus Russell, but I really noticed John Lucas, and I said, hey, if you get a minute when you're done here, do you have? Would you sit down with us and and let us, uh, you know, interview you and have a conversation with you? And he did, and it was great. Um, and I think that's the last time that I had Lucas on the show. So I'm very much looking forward to talking to John Lucas. That will be in the final segment of the show. A couple of things, real quickly, before we start with Stanford Steve. Number one is this: uh, Alex Ovechkin's on fire. I love that. I'm a big Alex Ovechkin fan. I'm not a big Caps fan. Most of you know that. I'm not a big hockey fan. I like playoff hockey. But man, eight goals now in eight games after scoring just eight goals in the first 43 games. And the Caps are still a ways away from, you know, the playoff, um, uh, you know, eight that'll make it out of the Eastern Conference. I think they're six points now out of the wild card race, but there's still 28 games left. I guarantee you the NHL would love to see Alex Ovechkin in the postseason. They were not in it last year, and uh, he is ramping it up from a scoring standpoint. Uh, That's for sure. That's actually really nice to see. I've been a fan of his, even if I'm not a big fan of the team necessarily. Um, The other story that I wanted to mention real quickly was this story that came out late last night, early this morning, about Virginia labor unions coming out against the Caps and Wizards moving to Potomac Yard. I'll read from the Post story. A group of labor unions said on Tuesday they oppose a proposal to move the Capitals and Wizards from D.C. to Alexandria, Virginia, dealing another blow to a plan that is already facing increasingly tall hurdles among legislators in Richmond. Um, there's a quote in here from the president of the AFL-CIO Northern Virginia Arm. Virginia Diamond is the person's name. Quote, taxpayers should not make a massive investment in a project that is only going to create more low-wage jobs for local workers. Um, The Post goes on to say that the union's stance is likely to influence state and local lawmakers who have said that labor support is essential for the $2 billion project. It certainly seems like much of the news, with the exception of kind of the House in Virginia passing um, the proposal, but there is a lot pushing against this deal. If you missed the show on Monday, where I had Sam Fortier on the show, walking through the story that The Post had written over the weekend about how Ted Leonsis and Mayor Bowser and Monumental and the city and then Virginia, basically the blow by blow of how it all led up to Ted, you know, sitting down at a press conference with Governor Yunkin and announcing that they were going to get this $2 billion project to move the teams to Northern Virginia to Potomac Yard. I I thought it was a, a really well done story. 
um, and really spelled out what really happened rather than speculating on it. But there's a lot of hurdles here for Ted to clear, and it's looking more and more like those hurdles may be too high to clear. And what would be really interesting is if it falls apart in Northern Virginia and he's got to come back to D.C., all of a sudden you would think the district would have the leverage in the negotiation. Now, my suggestion would be that the district consider it to be a real lucky break that it fell through in Virginia and then pick up where they left off in December, which was making available $500 million for the $800 million project. If they took that opportunity to try to haggle the deal down and into better terms for the city, when in many ways they, I think, were more responsible for Ted intending to take his teams to Northern Virginia, they could never get their act together. They came to that meeting on September 1st with a proposal, an official proposal that was far different from the one that had been discussed. And Ted was uh, amenable, as the Post story said, um, to uh, to moving forward with. Um, if it falls apart and falls through in Virginia, DC should just pick up where they left off in December and give Ted the $500 million that they came up with under, you know, favorable, you know, and fair terms for both parties to keep the teams in DC. Um, And it does seem like the chances are increasing that the Virginia option may not be an option that actually happens. Uh, I wanted to mention real quickly before to, before we get to Stanford, Steve, because it's, it's kind of a good segue into the conversation about quarterbacks. Um, two things. One, I had Rob Likens. He was the offensive coordinator and quarterback coach at Arizona State when Jaden Daniels played at Arizona State in 2019 on the radio show today. He was really good in talking about Jaden Daniels as a young quarterback, Jaden Daniels the person. Um, That's available at the Team 980 uh, if you want to listen to that. And then I got this tweet from Gene who said, Kevin, are we really going to take a quarterback as skinny as Jaden Daniels? He's pencil thin, has a build like RG3, and seems like he's one, one NFL hit away from the IR list. Doesn't make sense. We did this before. Heisman winner, insane athlete, number two overall. Come on, we can do better than this. Um, thank you, Gene. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kevin Sheehan DC. Um, also, rate us and review us on Apple and Spotify if you get a chance. Uh, so, let me just mention this. I don't see any comp with RG3 other than Heisman winner, insane athlete, and number two overall. Uh, RG3 had a breakable build. He was a straight line track athlete. He had no peripheral vision. He couldn't slide. He couldn't avoid big hits. Um, and he just had a more breakable frame. By the way, he had been injured seriously at Baylor. He had torn an ACL when he was at Baylor. Um, Jaden Daniels is skinny. I agree with you, Gene. His frame doesn't look like the typical NFL quarterback frame, especially a quarterback that's going to be as mobile and run as much as uh, Jaden Daniels has. I have one concern more than any other about Jaden Daniels. It's that very thin frame. They're going to have to, you know, build it up a little bit when he gets into the NFL. However, he's got great vision. 
is able to avoid hits, gets out of bounds with his speed before he gets hit. A lot of you have sent me these compilation videos of, of him taking these massive hits. Just as an FYI, most of those are from the 2022 season, not the 2023 season. If you've watched his tape, you know how he can avoid a lot of big shots, how he does that little thing where he's running down the sidelines and then just hops out of bounds, flips the ball to the ref, avoids any contact. I would be more fearful of the hits he'll take in the pocket. I think those are the hits, you know, with a smaller frame that may be more problematic um, for him. But um, anyway, that is a perfect segue uh, into a conversation about quarterbacks in the draft. Jumping on with us right now to talk some college football and NFL draft is Stanford Steve Coughlin from the Scott Van Pelt Show. Our good friend Stanford Steve is with us at Stanford Steve 82 on X on Twitter. And, of course, you can watch him uh, with Scott every night on SportsCenter. So I want to just start with what I think my audience wants to hear from you the most, and that is quarterbacks, draft, who do you like? And then I'll give you a couple of hypotheticals for Washington at two. But rank them right yep. now in terms of, you know, on your board, who do you have one through six? Oh, um, well, Caleb, Drake, Jaden, to start, I, I'm still diving back into McCarthy um, and Bo Nix. Right now I would have uh, McCarthy ahead of Nix. And then who am I missing? Pen- the Pen- Penix. Um, Penix Jr. Yes. Uh, I actually, Penix ahead of Nix. All right. Well, if you haven't, I, I don't, the, the top three is what everybody's focused on. Do you think yep. that they're, like most people do, there's a big separation after the top three with whomever's next? Uh, it depends on the fit, Kevin. It really does. Um, you know, when you start going up and down, uh, this draft, what really stands out to me is the depth of offensive line play. Now, I'm not in the tier of saying these left tackles are as high as guys in the past, but when you start combining, you know, combinate, um, combining, you, you know, your plan and what you go about, I do think as as a lot of times you look at a situation. Uh, where where a quarterback's going to fall, but he's going to the better team because of the draft order, right? The playoffs. Um, I thought it was really interesting uh, last year that the Lions knew they had their guy, but still had plenty to prove, and they took Hendon Hooker, yeah. who I thought was a a, a valued commodity. Uh, now, as you start to see, you know the Mitch Trubisky's and the the guys that haven't had a lot of college experience. Those those. Gambles were taken on those guys at the top of drafts, and those guys are, are going by the wayside. And now there's this, this gauge of, we want guys that have played plenty of snaps, and I've always been in favor of that. I, I don't care. You know, the windows in this league are so short. I want a guy with experience that has played as much ball. So, um, you know, you're not going to find more experience than, than Penix and Knicks, but those three guys at the top that I, you know, coming in and, and, and basically starting from day one, I, I think they have they have plenty of experience. Uh, I just I mean Daniels Daniels longevity in college is incredible. I mean he beat Justin Herbert yeah, when when they were exactly. you know in, in the in the making for a playoff. So 
you, you fast forward to now and you look at what he did and Caleb also and Bo and, and Penix and, and going about the transfer process and finding that situation and making the most of it. And that, that's what's really cool about this is there's plenty of investment from all six of these guys. And, and, and that's what's fascinating moving forward, knowing what kind of a hot commodities they are. It's interesting because, you know, the NBA draft, there's a different mindset, right? Oh, you don't want to draft anybody that's oh, God, 23 yeah. or 24 yeah. years old. Yeah. It actually drives me nuts because all I want is a really good player. But, you know, the 19-year-old that you are projecting in a major way, and what you're saying, and we've seen that, look, Trey Lance may be – it's not just the level of college football he played at. It's the fact that he played very little college football at all, yep. you know, and yeah. and so that's an interesting um, uh, way to look at it. And all three, look, all six of these guys have played a hell of a lot of college football, in part yeah. because we've also had kind of the COVID year, et cetera. But, I mean, Daniels, yeah, I mean, Daniels, five years, Nick's six, something like that. Um, you know, obviously, um, Caleb has been a big time starter, may a starter since, you know, Hal graduated, et cetera. So your order is Caleb may and Jaden Daniels. So let's go to, to go to a couple of hypotheticals. Well, let me start with this. How Uh much separation is there between Caleb and may, and then may and Daniels in your mind? Not much. Okay. Not much. I think it's evenly. The difference is even amongst the three. Um, you know, if you want for percentages on it, whatever you want to do. Um, here, here's here's why I I prefer May for the Commanders. If we want to go right there. Yep. When I watched him in person on tape, the process of what North Carolina football has been. There's a there's a comfort level and a not trying to hide anything that I really think is real. And what I mean by that is SC comes in this past year, defending Heisman Trophy winner, all the expectations in the world. Everybody knows their defense isn't going to be great. But it took a while. You know, we're trying, you know, to find ways to get in. Lincoln Riley shuts down interviews with players and, and doesn't allow access. And I'm like, well, you know, how, how do you do that when – you have such a great player of, of that caliber to showcase your university and, and, the, and the position you're in. And that, that just caught me, you know, by saying, and it goes back to the, 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 the fingernail paint. And there's just a lot there where now it's going to be all vetted out. Like these, these teams are as proactive as they are. They've done their homework starting, you know, two years ago on these guys. So with Caleb, you know, None of his team is going to be in in those personal meetings. How is he going to handle himself in that situation? That's what I want because, I mean, being a local guy, Kevin, I'm flying out every every Friday or Thursday morning, and who do I see at the airport? It's all these high school parents that are going out to see their kids that are playing in college. I, I ran into numerous Gonzaga parents at the airports this this season, and they're like just, oh, how about Caleb? How, they love Caleb, love him. Um, and I just thought that was really cool, but we never got to see that side of him. You know, you hear about his teammates. His teammates like him. So, like, that's a big plus. But on the other hand, with Drake May, it's, it's just Mac Brown. Come on in. What do you need? Do you want to sit down with, 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 with Drake May? Do you want to go do a feature with him? I mean, I think Marty Smith went over to summer to, you know, to go fishing with him. 
you know, the, there were, it was just a cool aspect. Like, I don't have anything else to hide here, and, and this is what you're going to get. And when it goes to on the field, I look at one thing that separates May from Daniels is looking what he had to work with. Like, all that nonsense they had to go through with Walker, the receiver, and Drake just shows up and says, all right, we got to play SEC team to start the year. I'm going to do whatever I got to do. Whereas, I'm not trying to take anything away from Daniels, but he's got three NFL receivers he's thrown to. He has a an offensive line, and when you talk to the guys that do the Joe Moore Award, they were right there. They were top three. So when you talk about the situation he was in, he was set up to succeed. North Carolina was based on their success on whatever Drake May could pull off. And to another essence, that's what USC was too. And when you talk about these three guys, the best thing about them that we've seen guys, you know, you go back to your Manziel and your Kyler Murray, but these guys are way more refined in, in improvising. And when I look at that, you talk to guys that coach in college and NFL, they want the bigger guy. They know they're going to get hit. And, and you, watch, you watch LSU. I mean, I was at the Bama game. They, 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 they made it a point they were going to hit him as much as they could. And, you know, cheap shot, whatever it is, it, it gets called. He doesn't finish that game. Those kind of things stick in my head. And like I said, not, I'm not taking anything away from him. He had the best season of a college football player. But when you stack all, I love what Drake May had to go through and what he brings to the table, and, and just in, uh, the, I'm not hiding anything. And I, I look at Caleb as he needs some work to do in the pocket, but Drake May, to me, as a trustworthy pick, I would totally be fine with the commanders there. So you talked about the availability of Drake May and the unavailability mm-hmm. of Caleb Williams during the offseason and you know leading up to it, mm-hmm. but you didn't mention Daniels in terms of his availability and how easy and accessible he was. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh-huh. I'm not uh-huh. passing judgment on on whether or not these are even significantly important things in the larger scheme of it. <laughs> but I'm interested yeah. to know what what the situation with Jaden Daniels was. All hands on deck. They were they're totally fine. Okay. They, they knew he was the catalyst for that team. Sorry, I didn't get to him. That's I was okay. Rambling on because I wanted to try and get it. But no, I mean, as as upfront as I think. What he had to face, too, Kevin, at Arizona State is, is, is so long ago that I think people forget. I mean, you got a coaching staff that's in turmoil. You had some success in that first year. I mean, I go back to a, a, a Mark D'Antonio team that's, top, I think they're top 10. They go out to Arizona State early in the year, and they lose to Jane Daniels. Uh, and Herm Edwards got that thing cranked up, and and then you see what happens off the field. And, and, and that, that coaching staff goes by the wayside. He's looking for a better opportunity. And, you know, Brian Kelly, out of the, out of the, out of the blue, you know, takes the LSU job. And, and what do we have here? We got one of the best offenses in the world. So I look at Jaden as being um, a lot more ahead of the game than people give him credit for. Uh, you know, just knowing what it takes to succeed, you know, having – you know, his lumps at the beginning of the 22 season and then fighting all the way back and, and getting his team to SEC title. I mean, look where that team started the season, uh, you know, with the with the um, the missed extra, blocked extra point against Florida State in right. the Dome. That's a home game for LSU. That fan base is, is as quick as anybody to show how unhappy they are. And what does he do? He goes out and he beats Bama in Baton Rouge on a Saturday night, and they go to the SEC title game like that. 
that's some real stuff that when you're looking at these guys, you got in the you got to take into accountability. Yeah, you know, you you mentioned um, just the the bigger challenge that May had. You know, what's interesting is, is that all three of them, Caleb Williams, Jaden Daniels, and Drake May, all were totally responsible for the team's success because all three defenses yep. were so god awful. You know, they all yeah. three of them played on teams that were horrendous defensive teams. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe Carolina wasn't as bad this year as they were in previous years. They were not a good defense, mm-hmm. though. And SC and, and LSU yeah. had two of the worst defenses in the country. So they were they mm-hmm. they were constantly the, – the games that were won were won by these players and the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, yeah and I go back – I mean, if you go back watch the Clemson-Carolina game this year, Carolina gets some brutal calls down in the red zone. Uh, a fumble that was a touchdown went through the end zone. It gave them the ball. But I just looked at the, the approach of Drake May and saying, we're, we're not here to hang around in a game. He always had the mentality of, of what, what am I going to do to take the next step to succeed? I mean, there, there's, there's cut-ups out there of, of him on fourth downs when he's just um, – I mean, first game of the year against South Carolina, just hanging in the pocket. No, he's responsible for the, uh, you know, the fourth linebacker week, and he takes the hit and throws a jump ball for a touchdown. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the fourth down, he, he throws the ball left-handed. Um, I, I love what he brings to the table. He doesn't put his guys at risk, but he does take his risk. And, and, and talk to that Carolina staff, they did have the conversation with him going back to the 22 season. about. I mean, you go back to his first three games, he's hurtling guys, not getting out of bounds. I mean, he's got these little shoulder pads on. You don't want that guy taking extra hits. But I will say, I think Daniels had it, and Caleb – is as elusive as any of them, they still want to prove what they can get away with. And now that they, they it, you know, it takes them a little bit. You, you take, there's so much practice time that's not allowed because of the rules now that these guys want to see what they could do in a game situation. And is it taking a sack when, you, when you're not supposed to? Yes, of course. Happened multiple times to all of these guys. Um, but I, I still love the wherewithal and the mindset of these guys, as I say, compared to guys that haven't played a lot of football. So let's get to um, Washington at two and go with the assumption so we can focus on May and Daniels. And you've already made the case for May, but I want to get into it in more detail. That Caleb Williams is gone. That Chicago is going to move on from Justin Fields in the next week or two. That you know, that's kind of a reading of the tea leave situation. uh, Leaves situation right now, and that. You know they're not going to trade the pick if they move on from Justin Fields. They're taking a quarterback at one, and let's just assume it's Caleb Williams. So here's Washington with Adam mm-hmm. Peters. Um, by the way, that just reminds me to ask you about Kingsbury here. Um, I didn't have that on my list, but mm-hmm. I'll add it. Uh, but they, they've got the choice of May and Daniels. Um, maybe the best way to ask it, because you because you said at the beginning, is it depends on where they land. You know Cliff Kingsbury. You know his offenses. You probably have a sense of what they're going to try to do here in Washington. So, which of the two would be the best fit for Cliff Kingsbury? Oh, that's a that's a great question. I I don't think it matters, Kevin. I I, I know they're going to have their choice, and they might be in a a tougher predicament than the Bears because, like, think about it now, right? The combine starts Monday. We already have this narrative of fields unfollowing, you know, on social media, right. the Bears. So, like, there's already this, this t- 
taste, right? Like that's, I mean, Scott gets mad at me all the time about, about, you know, what the narrative is. That's a narrative. Like that's going to be the first thing brought up and meetings and everybody talking at Indianapolis in the combine is all right. Fields is done. Like that, that, that's going to be the assumption that's made. So now with Washington, I, I think you've got to be even more certain, you know, if, if guys have a feeling in the building, they got to be careful because you never know what can what, what can open up. I mean, the, the, the way and how tight everything is kept, you got to figure that there's teams that are going to have a preference between May and Daniels. And does it matter? Um, you know, do, do you get something uh, dropping from two to three? I, I, I don't know the logistics of that. I know there's the charts out there and all that. But going back to Kingsbury, I, I think he is, you know, he gets lumped in, you know, um, oh, I'm trying to think, you know, you're Johnny Manziel, uh, your, your, your little guy running around quarterback, Kyler Murray. Um, and then on the other hand, you have, yeah, you, you have the Mahomes, uh, deal. And, you know, they had the Mayfield riff and, and it, when he caught, when he left, um, he left tech to go to, uh, Oklahoma. So I, I think he doesn't get enough credit for how good of a quarterback coach he is and a football mind he is. You know, he's got, he's got the swag, he's got the good looks, he's got all that stuff, and everybody loves to talk about that. But, like, you go back, and, you know, I watched the Hard Knocks last year when he was still in charge of the Cardinals. Like, that was as depressing in-season Hard Knocks I've ever seen. Like, <laughs> guys are just going by the way. I mean, and seriously, like, the team meetings, it's, and there was, oh, he's got to be more fiery. It, it, these guys know, like, the playoffs are out of race. You lost your quarterback. You don't know if your best – you know, your face of your franchise, uh, J.J. Watt's going to be there. Buda Baker's out. Like, that is as brutal a situation and brutal, uh, you know, um, uh, a hand of cards to be dealt. And I don't judge him on that. I, ju- I judge him on what I know and what I've, what I've talked to him. Uh, you know, he's from, you know, the, the, the West Coast, the you know, played for Leach, and then you got Holgerson under there. Like, those those guys are free spirit, and, and the best thing about them is how, how short-term their memory is. You know, they, they, they're, they're not afraid to face a loss and they know what they got to do. They're the first guys in the tape room to figure out what the problem is and, and they fix it. And a lot of times you don't have the players to fix it. But as far as the plan goes and what you want, I, I have the most, utmost, uh, confidence in Cliff Kingsbury having a plan and adapting to what he has. Go, I mean, you mentioned some of the names. He never had a good offensive line, it feels like, and he's probably not going to have a great one. In, in Washington in year one. But what do you do about that? You know, do you, do you have multiple three-step drops? Do you have a guy that can roll out? Do you, you know, you have, you have receivers that can get open in the quick game. And, and, and how does that affect your run game and, and your protection plan? Those guys are as good as it gets when it comes to acclimating to what they have and still figuring out how to move the ball and keep your defense off the field, which I still think goes back to the most important thing in the NFL. And, and, and I believe that Cliff Kingsbury has that, um, and I would think just because of the stature, I, I think May has more of the pro build. So you've answered the question about Cliff Kingsbury, and I, I know that you feel this way because we've talked about it, but you love the hire. Yes, absolutely love it. Um, it like I said, as far as a yeah. plan, I, I don't uh, – I, I just think when you look at what Rivera was up against and then you bring a name like the enemy in – I, I, I don't see that. And, and you see how hands-on Dan Quinn's always been in the defense. You see him up in the box for the Cowboys as the D.C. and as vested as he is as a D.C. 
I think he made that hire knowing he has full confidence in Cliff Kingsbury, who's been an NFL head coach, been a big-time college head coach, saying, all right, when I need to put my onus and in, 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 in put my book in for the defense, because, uh, you know, that's, that's the saying that comes around with him, that, you know, that when he went to Dallas, they, they rebuilt the book uh, of how they want to do things defensively. And that's going to take time, and you know the investment that it takes. But now, on the other side, while I'm doing that, I have a former head coach that knows what it takes to be successful in this league, and that's, that, that's why I absolutely love it. All right, so May and Daniels, back to them. On May, yep. you've made the case as to why. Why Why wouldn't you do May? What concerns you about May, if anything? Um, huh. If the answer's nothing, I, it's nothing. Yes. No, it's, it, it, it's not a lot. I, I, I do wonder about those risk-taking uh, deals. But like I said, all three of these top guys have it. They, they've all made decisions where they shouldn't have, and it, it's cost their teams. But again, the own, I think that's the toughest thing. Your situation is going to change. You're not necessarily going to be asked to win a game the first four weeks in the NFL. You know, you, you're going to have different ways to go about things. And, you, you know, they're going to try and put more on your plate. So I just think the idea of going to the next play is, is the biggest eye-opener for these three guys. They've all shown how much they can extend plays, keep drives alive, and I just wonder at this level how much you still can get away with that. And, and that, that's the one thing I think across the board with those top three guys, and that's it. The, the, the ability to figure out I don't have to be elusive and I can throw the ball away and lift to the next down, I don't have to get the first down here. I could go out of bounds and live to the next play. That those those are the things that 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 because it happens that much faster at this level. And, and they're and, and they're all the three. Toughest. They're all three in yeah. terms of their strengths: off schedule creativity and trying to buy time. That they're, they're great at it. And it, and but yeah, I mean, and Caleb probably is is in his own tier with accuracy on the run. But Drake May is not going to like. I'm dying to see what May and Daniels run if they run at the 40. I'm worried they're not going to run it. That's, that's what I want to see. Because I was asked the, asked the question, like, who can separate themselves between May and Daniels at the combine? And I said, I don't know because I don't know what they're going to do. They are going to wow the heck out of people throwing the football. But when you start talk about, you know, your, your verticals as for a quarterback and your speed and your, and your shuttles as a quarterback, that's the stuff that's fascinating to me. And that's the thing that all these guys will blow away, but I don't think they have to do it because of the situation that they're in, and they'll be able to do whatever they want at their pro day. That's really interesting. I haven't thought about what they would do and what they won't, what they'll do and not do yeah. at the combine next week. Yeah. But I'm just curious if they ran the forty, what would Daniels run? Would he run four three? No, I don't know. Four threes, <laughs> and listen. I go back and watch that Florida game from time to time. I mean, when he goes down the sideline, it's it's incredible. And the guy behind – I was watching it last night, actually. The guy behind him is trying like heck. And, and Jalen pulls up is going probably 75% the last 15 yards. Yeah. He still can't get him down. Um, I would say in the 4-4s four – and I, I want to see May. I think May could break 4-6. Yeah. I, I really do. 
I mean, we um, should like uh, my good friend Doc Walker would be listening to this saying, uh-huh. "Why are you guys talking about shuttle?" Because the next thing he loves to talk about shuttle runs or what he calls the underwear Olympics uh, at the at the Indy Combine, which he thinks is completely and utterly worthless. Which I tend to agree more with him than than yeah, not I agree. Do um, I do. But we're talking about forty times for quarterbacks. But you know, so. We've talked a lot about Drake May. You know how much I love Jaden Daniels. I actually think it was yeah. one of the most exciting seasons by a player that I can remember. And and I and I've noticed mm-hmm. and I said this to to Lavero yesterday on the podcast. I said he goes, you know, uh, a bunch of people are putting Daniels number 2 now and he goes, "You really like him." And I said, "Look, What's happening right now is that the Super Bowl's over, and a lot of people that don't watch college football religiously week in and week out, they're just putting yep. on the highlight reel of Jaden Daniels, oh, yeah. and they're they're picking up their jaw from the ground every other yep. play because it is the most uh, incredible wow tape of any quarterback we've seen in years. Um, You mentioned the Bama game. I actually think that's the game that pro scouts should turn on and watch because they're, you know, NFL defensive players. It's on the road. It's a massive game. LSU has no defense. I mean, if they had been just average defensively, they may have won the national championship this year. But they were horrendous Mm -hmm. defensively. And he was effing brilliant in that game. And, and the cheap shot that knocked him out of the game, that, that should have been flagged. It wasn't flagged. But he, yeah. had, he had neighbors dropping pass after pass. There were multiple drops in that game by his NFL receivers. And, he, and somehow it was, 28, you know, it was 21-21 at halftime. It was amazing. Yeah. I, I said on game day that morning, Cameron, I said, you know, people were talking about what I like in the game. I said, if you think LSU's going to win – just bet him to win the Heisman Trophy because if he wins that game, he's going to win the Heisman Trophy. And it shows you how much, you know, how great a year I did is he lost that game and he still won the Heisman Well, I, you know what? So what's, he, what's funny he, about that is the next day or the Monday on the show I said, they lost that game, but to me, he clinched the Heisman Trophy that night. Because uh, if anybody was watching that game – they saw, and I think you know the Missouri game earlier in the year when he got hurt and and led him back to a win against another good, yeah. you know, a, a good all around team. Because Florida's defense mm-hmm. stunk, Ole Miss's defense yep. stunk, A um, and M's mm-hmm. didn't. He had a phenomenal game against A and M too. I there are a lot. I like. I don't have any concerns about him except for two things. One is his frame. And, you know, whether or not it can hold up. I think he – these people that say he's a north-south runner haven't watched him. He's got great vision and great wiggle in the open field. And then the other thing that I'm just not sure about, I've watched a bunch of interviews with him. I've watched a bunch of those videos with him getting a game ball from Brian Kelly in the locker room. And, you know, everybody's saying speech, speech, speech. I had his offensive coordinator, Rob Likens, from Arizona State on the radio show today. Um, and he mm-hmm. he loves Jaden, but he's very introverted. He's very shy. Yeah. Everybody everybody says incredible dude. And by the way, so cool and calm on the field. Um, yep. But that he's you know he's not a vocal leader. I don't know that you have to be, 
But I just wonder whether or not Drake may, if that'll be the differentiator for some teams. I, I think they're they're both those guys are really really level headed, Kevin, and and I really start to think now about the situation these guys are going in where you're going to be dominated. There's going to be some some old veterans that are going to have control of that locker room. And I almost think it might be better if you're not this outspoken guy. Like, go out and prove yourself with your pet, with your with your ability. Go out and show these guys you can have success on the offensive side. You know, show the defensive veterans that that you can put some balls in, in some windows that the the previous guy couldn't. That's that's where I, I think we're starting to get this whole thing with social media. And I give those two guys credit uh, for being able to be that level head in this day and age where it's just woe is me. I mean, I go back once he realized you know he has a chance. For the Heisman, like he starts going on every ESPN show, and there wasn't any provocative things said. There no. wasn't anything that you know shine light on himself. He talked about his family. He talked about his team. He talked about how much confidence he had, um, you know, in his family and the trust he put in LSU when he transferred. Like it's everything you want to hear with, with these guys, and, and that's what's really really cool because the problem, the, the issue is two of these three are not going to work out. And it's just brutal because they're all legitimate, legitimate dudes. And you want the best for them, seeing how many guys previously haven't lived up to it. Real quickly on his frame, being skinny. And, you know, I know you told me recently, you said he's not 6'4". What do you think he's going to measure at the Combine? Uh, I would say maybe in the 6'3s. Okay. I I, I just... Which is fine. I, I don't... He, you're, you're, yeah, he's no, not going to surprise you. Two and a half, I'm good. Yeah. Um, so, do you have? Is that a concern for you? It seems to be a concern for a lot of people. It's been my concern watching yeah. him all year long. Is is? I mean, Anthony Richardson broke in week three, and he's got a Cam Newton body. Exactly. So, what what's going to happen to Jaden Daniels? Is that a is that a concern for you? It is Anthony Richardson. His problem was he didn't play enough football and he didn't know when to get down. Yep. You go back and look at the first three weeks of that. He took he took a hit on a touchdown run. Uh, yeah, I think knocked him out. Texas. I'm like, man, just just get down. You're <laughs> in the end zone. Yeah. Um, but I, I think James ahead from that wherewithal. It's it's the it's the next Kevin. It's it's the third down. You know, pressures where you take a hit on the hip and you know that guy's been stronger than the than the guy is you played against the previous three years. And then you get hit on it, you know, four plays later. And now that next day you're, you're feeling it and you're not able to, to give 100% in practice on, on Tuesday and Wednesday. That, that's where the totality comes up. And you talk to guys, I always say, at the, at the highest level, and they say, I, I take the frame uh, because of the, the unknown of when you're going to get these hits and the tally of them. And, listen, Jane could go put some, you know, more muscle on his, on his bottom. There's no doubt. Is he going to be able to run a 4-3? Probably not. But is he going to be better off for him? Yes. Uh, but I think he's way better. When you talk about mindset of taking hits than, than an Anthony Richardson, I, I think he's way above that length. But, yeah, that would there is a slightness to his frame um, that worries. That does, you know, give me when, – when you're looking at the other two especially, that, that, that's the problem is when I measure him against the other two guys in May and Williams, that's what sticks out to me. All right. Uh, one more on this, and then I just want to ask you quickly about the 5-plus-7 the uh, playoff format in college football. Uh-huh. I don't get it with J.J. McCarthy watching him. 
I don't get okay. the talk of why he's going to be a first rounder. Um, some say that you know, in in NFL circles, he's rated much higher on boards than anybody would imagine at yeah. this point. Explain JJ McCarthy's you know appeal. Well, you got to go back to he was like Harbaugh's favorite recruit, um, and when he brought him in, they had Cade McNamara, and things started rolling for Cade McNamara. Yeah. And when you go back to when he started playing him, he put him in in situation. It didn't matter what the down and distance time of game. Like I think I think it was two series and then he got one or he started the first series in the second quarter, whatever. Um, and there were some brutal circumstances he got thrown into and, and, and failed. Uh, I go back to a game in, in East Lansing when they lost. He fumbles and I think he throws a pick in only like five series. And they lose that game. Uh, and but I look at what he was up against when when you have that priority from the coaching staff, and you're the young guy, you got to take a lot of heat from the older guys, man. Like you got to put up with a lot of stuff. And I look at how he elongated that. I go back to last year where I thought he was incredible against Ohio State in uh, the in the confidence that Michigan had and opened up the offense early on to get that secondary out for the run game, and he hit the throw. There was no incompletions, man. He hit those throws, and that place was as silent as I've ever heard it in the second quarter. And then you go back to, all right, we got it done. He gets the starting job. They beat Ohio State. They go to the Big Ten title game. That's fine. And then he goes to bring them to a place that they haven't been in forever, and he plays his worst game. And I just think about how long this past year was for him. Knowing his team could have played for the you're talking about, you're talking about the You're talking about the TCU game. TCU Fiesta Bowl. He yeah. throws two pick sixes yeah. and they lose. Right. Um, and, and they are backbreakers. Yeah. Um, and I just think about, you know, being the face of that, that program and fighting all the way back and this year saying, you know what, we are going to be all right. Let's just do what we need to do early on. And when I need to be really good, I'm going to be really good. And he was that, man. I mean, the timely throws against Ohio State, he was awesome out of the pocket. Uh, they lose the offensive lineman. He started running around scrambling. Um, the throws he made to end that game, um, the, the, the throws in, in, the, in the semifinal, when they, I mean, you're up against the man. You're down in Alabama. You got one drive left. And that was as cool as, as I've seen anybody. So I, I get it. There's not the flash. There's not that, but when I think about precision, game plan, taking what's supposed to be taken, I, I, I put him up there because he's made the throws when he has to as a, a guy like, let's say, Bo Nix, where that system is get the ball out and let's get our ball handlers the ball as fast as they can and make guys miss. And I just look at J.J. owning the offense, and um, I, think that, I think that's going to – I believe it, uh, he has what it takes to succeed at the next level. All right, quick break, and then we'll talk about the 5-plus-7 playoff format for college football to finish up with Stanford Steve right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data 
and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you're one of those people into high-end vehicles, exotic vehicles, there's a dealership in town that's brand new to the DMV that caters to that interest. It's Magden Motors. You can find out more at magdenmotors.com. They specialize in clean, low-mile, and unique spec vehicles. Every car goes through a 110-point inspection. It's backed by an extensive warranty. Financing and leasing options are available on all vehicles, and they've got an expert staff with an average of 20 years of experience. All the big brands, Lamborghini, Porsche, Ferrari, McLaren, MagdenMotors.com. That's M-A-G-D-E-N Motors.com. All right, uh, let me just get your thoughts on this before we wrap it up. So yesterday, the NCAA, they agreed, it was voted on, and we have a 12-team playoff with the format now. Uh, We had it before, but with all of the conference changes and the disintegration of your league, uh, the Pac-12, we had to to reshape it. So it's five conference champions. The the top four ranked conference champions will get first-round buys and host – uh, not yep. host, but we'll play quarterfinal games after a first round bye. Um, the fifth best conference, highest rated conference uh, team will get uh, an auto- automatic bid. And then just so f- for those of you that don't understand, it'll be five automatics and then seven at larges. So the NCAA tournament yep. you know, has the automatic berths for conference champions or conference tournament champions, and then the rest are at large. Um there's one thing more than anything else that bothers me about what they came up with, but I want your reaction first. I, I love it. I get it. People are going to, you know, complain about the seating. We've never had to worry about seating in college football in my <laughs> lifetime. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, seriously, I'm not going to start worrying about it now. I, I, I'm really not going to. We wanted more teams in the playoff, and we got that. And the thing I was, wondered, or I, I did wonder about, and it, it, I got a chance to talk to Greg Sankey uh, at the FCC Championship game this past year. I said, well, what do you, I mean, I, uh, Kevin, I walked into that game and I was like, holy Christmas, this is, this is bigger than the national championship. I mean, it's Bama, it's Georgia, yeah. you know, the, the winner's, the winner's going. And I'm telling you, like with ESPN getting that thing, I'm telling you right now, that thing's going to be built up like the Super Bowl. It's going to stay at four o'clock. But it is as big as anything as I've been to because no matter what happens on a play, the place is rocking because it's 50-50. Um, but going back to that, I, I, I look at the – I asked him, you know, do you worry about the conference championship going away? He's like, heck no. He's like, look at this. 
it's going to be even bigger next year. I I'm agree. Like, How? I totally agree. He's like, yeah, and he said, he goes, it's a buy. You get a buy. And I, I, I think about it, and I'm like, wow. I mean, that 11 days at that point of the season, uh, I, I think is, is astronomical. And I don't want, no one's going to want to lose those games, but then you get a home game. The loser's going to get a home game, you know? So I, I, uh, I, I get it. People are going to come after the seeding. I, I don't care. Um, I, I'm, I'm fired up for it. You look at the way it's set up, uh, you know, for a Friday and a triple header on Saturday, the week after Army Navy, and, and, and we're right in it, man. Um, amidst of all the bowl games that, you know, college football fans still love, but, man, you got a lot more meaningful football being played, and um, I think the windows that they're in are absolutely spectacular. Yeah, I mean, that last part that you just said, I, I've heard this argument for years, even before we got a Final Four. Oh, it's going to render the regular season, you know, uh, less no. important, the conference champ. What are you talking about? It's not It's not even, by the way, the buy. Forget the buy. In a lot of these instances, like the ACC championship game last year would have been for a bid, you know, a guaranteed yeah. bid. So, you know, you're going to be playing for that. There, there are lots of these championship games. Now, we won't have that because we won't have some of the divisions like we've had in the Big Ten, but the second-place team in the Big Ten may have no chance at getting in at large, but they're in the championship game, and they've got a chance to clinch right. a bid. So uh, the, the games yeah. the games at the end of the year, the, the conference championship games are going to be so much more important across the board. I gave the example earlier. I'm like, how many years has the Big 12 championship game featured, you know, K-State and, you know, Texas oh. or and and there was no birth at stake. Now there will be. Yeah. Um yep. but the thing that I there're two things. There's one thing by the way, I'm with you. I'm just glad that we'll have this. And I mean, for those of you that haven't seen yeah. the calendar, December 20th, 21st, you'll have a, a game oh. on Friday night to kick it off the first round, a triple header on Saturday. By the way, I think the NFL will probably try to take it on um, on that Saturday, but we'll find out when their schedule comes out later on. And then the 31st and January 1st will be the quarterfinal rounds. So you'll have two games on New Year's Eve, two games on, on, on New Year's Day. Oh all played through bowl games and then the the championship then the semifinals are the 9th and 10th of January a Thursday night game and a Friday night game and then the title game will be January 20th so it'll be amazing so here are the two things you nailed one of them but I'll start with this i think there's going to be great pushback at some point from the four schools that get a buy that they don't get that incredible revenue bump that will come with playing a home game yeah um, and and by the way, I think as fans, it's going to be so great to see the first round played in the venues of the higher seeded team. But I'd like to see that for the quarterfinal round as well. But I understand the bowls and how you know you got to yep. have these bowl games be relevant, um, or six of them right. every year. The the seeding to me is just easy. I understand we're getting something we haven't gotten, and we should be thrilled. But. This is just basic 101 competitive, you know, tournament, you know, talk. You you give the five automatics, the seven at larges, and you've got your field, and then you seed them one through twelve to have a competitive tournament, the most competitive tournament you can have. 
What you're talking about mm-hmm. now is the possibility. Everybody's given the Notre Dame possibility. Notre Dame goes number one in the country, is the best team in the country, and they're going to be the five seed. All right, in the, in in the current format. But how about the you know the upset Big Twelve winner with three losses? And now they've got a first round bye because they upset you know whomever they beat in the final. I just think that it should be reseeded once you have the twelve teams. Uh, understood. Two things. I hope that happens for Notre Dame. Being a, a not a Notre Dame <laughs> fan, that would be the best thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I I think that's the only way you're going to get these four. I mean, because let's face it, man. Um, the Big 12's hanging on by a thread. Uh, you know, I know the ACC has had some their issues with Florida, but like, look at the Big 12 right now. Like, I, I honestly think Arizona might be the front runner, and I think that only way to make this four and 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 make everybody happy is to guarantee that by now. Can they rip things, these things up and and go by the wayside in, in the coming years? Absolutely. Um, so, I, I, like I said, I am not going to get uh, overbound with the seeding stuff. Um, it's still going to be awesome, and uh, you know, I, it 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 brings us to. I don't know about you, I mean, you're older, uh, but like, I never thought we were going to see this. I, I honestly, like, growing up and, and playing in my day, like, never thought we were going to see the openness uh, of twelve teams, you know, vying for a championship, and that, like, I, I'm truly. Truly grateful for that. Me too. Can't wait. Thanks for doing this, as always. You got it, my man. Stanford Steve, everybody. John Lucas next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. It's an absolute pleasure right now to welcome onto the show one of the greatest players in Maryland basketball history, one of the greatest guards in ACC basketball history, one of the greatest tennis players in ACC history, John Lucas, who if you were like I was, you know, a child of the 70s and a Maryland basketball fan, you were a huge John Lucas fan, uh, which I was. And I reached out to you to have you on the show, obviously to talk about your coach, Lefty Drizel, who passed away over the weekend at 92 years old. But before we get to your coach, tell everybody what you're up to these days. Well, I've been coaching with the Rockets, the Houston Rockets, the last six years. And I moved to the front office this year as a form of a assistant general manager in front office stuff. And doing, I'm still doing the NBPA, National Basketball Players Association, Top 100 camp. And I have uh, camps all over the country. And I'm, I'm developing youth basketball. Doing a lot with that. You know, you have really had an unbelievable post-playing career. Everything that you did with your rehab centers and the people that you helped over the years um, that were struggling with some of the same things that you were struggling, coaching, being a head coach in the NBA, being an assistant coach, being in the Rockets organization for so many years. I mean, you really have had a life, haven't you? Uh, Basketball is my family business. You know, my youngest son is associate head coach at Duke. And my oldest son is coaching with the Phoenix Suns. So basketball has been our family business, and my daughter runs my company. 
So it's been our family business, and you know, I, I, I've enjoyed. I've had every position in basketball. I was the vice president and general manager and coach of the Sixers. I was coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers and coach of the Spurs. I've been the first pick in the draft to the aging veteran to the starting player to a backup. So I think I know all the roles that I involved in basketball. And John, you've lived in Houston pretty much for the last how many years? I mean, I you know, you played in Houston obviously and and did you just fall in love with Houston as a place to live because you lived in so many well, different you know, places as a player and well, as a coach? When I moved when I moved when I moved from when they made me the first pick in the draft from right. um, I came here and stayed and then you know, Moses, who also went to Maryland for one day, we played together here, and we stayed. So I've been in Maryland, been in Houston 40 years. Been my home and been my place. And one of the biggest reasons is when I had my drug and alcohol problems, this city loved me until I could learn to love myself. So it was a big part of what I was doing in my future. So I see I owe this city. So I work to try to help to give back and be in the service of the city. You know, I remember your rookie season because as a Maryland fan, but also as a Bullets fan, you got drafted by the Rockets, and in your first year, it was either your first year or the second year, you guys played the Bullets in like the first round of the playoffs. And I wanted you to do well, but I wanted the Bullets to win the series, but you guys won that series, I'm pretty sure. You got a good memory. We played them in the semifinals of the Central Division Conference. Yeah. And we that was Wes Unsell and Elvin Hayes, Phil Schneer, and Mike Real. And those guys were all my heroes from being at Marlin and used to play against them. And Moses and I were at Marlin. Had always, Moses had been in D.C. most of his time that summer. And so when we played them, I'll never forget Elvin Hayes saying he didn't think any young center could beat them. And Moses had an unbelievable series, and I played well. We beat them, but then we lost to the Sixers. Right. That year, we eventually lost to the Portland Trailblazers for the championship. You have a very good number. Well, uh, not only that, this that was it for the Sixers until Moses came to Philadelphia in 1983, and they won it because the Bullets went to the title and won the title the next year and then went back and defended their title and lost to Seattle. They went back-to-back with Seattle uh, those next two years. But I do remember that series. I do remember Moses. I want to say also on that team, wasn't Rudy Tomjanovich on that team? Rudy Tomjanovich, Calvin Murphy, Mike Newland. Uh, Theo Ratliff, we had a very good team at that time. Tom Owens, who played with South Carolina, that had just left the ACC. Uh, we had a very good team, and so did the Bullets. Yeah, um, Moses would go on with you know they. It was the year after Magic won the title as a rookie. That next year, I think, was either his last year in Houston or next to last year in Houston. But they ended up beating the Lakers as the defending champs in one of those. Remember, they had the best two out of three miniseries in the first round. Yes, yes, that's right. And Moses and those 
beat Magic and them like four to one uh, because one of the guys I put in coaching played with them, which was Mo Cheeks. Yeah. He played on that team along with Doc and George McGinnis and and uh, Bobby Jones, World Be Free. Yeah. I mean, and Andrew Tone. I mean, how about you and Calvin Murphy in the backcourt? <laughs> that was a hell of a backcourt. Well, Murphy and I, we were. I, I played the point, but God is two guards. And Murph taught me a lot about the game of basketball. And we are both still with the Rockets organization today. He does color commentary, and I'm still there with them. Wow. Um,. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I might be thinking of somebody else, but isn't he one of the all-time greatest free-throw shooters in the history of the game? Wasn't he like career yes, 90%, he something like that? He was a career 90% until Steph Curry broke his record along with Rick Barry. Yeah, Rick Barry, And Larry Bird was up there for two, yes. Yeah, well, Rick Barry shot his underhanded. I don't know how the kids would react to that uh, today. Um, so, uh, God, yeah, it, it, it's so it's so great to hear your voice. So, I, look, I, I called you about Lefty. The four years you spent at Maryland, for some of us of a certain age, I mean, those were – you know, those were memories. Those are childhood memories and how big Maryland basketball was in the area and how good the team was. And, you know, Luke, Lucas played on both of Lefty's Elite Eight teams uh, at Maryland. Uh, in 73, they lost to Providence. And then, of course, in 75, after McMillan and Elmore graduated, they lost to Louisville. That team should have had Moses on it. But I just, I guess I just want your thoughts you know, on on Lefty and 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 being a part of his life for as for as many years as you were, four of them as a player. Well, you know, Coach was an ideal coach for our team. He was an innovator. He started uh, Midnight, Midnight Madness. Madness. Yep. He also started having them play Hill to the Chief when he walked in, and he would always put his victory sign up. Uh, coach was. I was the first freshman to start in Division One basketball because of him. Howard White got hurt, and I ended up being a starter for him and the first freshman to start. But Coach's greatest attribute was his love for his players. He, uh, he really loved his players. And at that time, he was determined to make Marlin, back then for those who were at that time, the UCLA of the East. Yep. And back then, we used to go on Tobacco Road, and we were hated. And in fact, you know, you may remember Lefty was the first one to let people put nicknames on the back of their jerseys. Remember uh, H. Howard White used to have H on the back of his jersey. <laughs> Jimmy O'Brien had O.B. I didn't and, uh, remember that. So no. He, was, wow. he was one of the first. But I'm going to tell you what my memory goes back to Coach. And since this is Black History Month, Coach came to my high school where my dad was a principal to watch a guy named Charlie Scott. Boy, you remember that name, of, Charlie uh, Scott? Of course, yeah. He he recruited him heavily at Davidson, being, yeah. Yeah, and Charlie was the first black to play in the ACC. Right at Carolina. But, but Mike Malloy was the first black player to play because Lefty took Mike Malloy because Davidson was 25 miles from a main highway. 
and Charlie wanted to go where he could be right close to Howard and ended up going to UNC Chapel Hill. Lefty has always been groundbreaking about that, and he's always been a big part. Now, now when I go back to Maryland, it's like a new Maryland to me because the Infinity Center, no more cold field house. Yeah. People don't know how special that was, uh, where that was to play, and how big Marlin basketball was. We were on primetime TV at night. Remember, we played we played a game before the Super Bowl. We played North Carolina State two years in a row on Super Bowl Sunday with David Thompson destroyed. And one of the funniest stories, David Thompson recruited me to State. And I kept telling Coach, Coach, this guy David Thompson, we, he's different. Now we're going to have to do something different. Ah, oh, Luke, you always talk about these Carolina guys. These are David average. 40 points against us. Did you know that? <laughs> I didn't know it was 40. On I knew it was Super a whole Bowl, lot. On Super Bowl Sunday. And you remember when Lenny rammed him into the backboard and they had a picture of his shoulder at the top of the square? Well, I remember the story about how, you know, David Thompson had that 48 inch vertical and he could go up and take, you know, take off a quarter, take off two dimes and a nickel and replace it with a quarter at the top of the backboard. (laughs) I do remember that NCAA tournament game where he hit his head on the side of the backboard. He hit that guy's head. How about when he jumped over the kid and hit his feet, hit his head? Exactly. And he had to take him off. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Lefty would all, and then David would come up and play pickup with us some at mom and coach because he had to have knee surgery. Coach said, "You know that knee not gonna be the same this year." just, but coach, I'm just telling you, Coach Giselle was one of the best. Always, always engaging, always enthusiastic, and he loved following basketball. Not all, not all of his time. After we left, the recruitment changed and things changed for him. So he went through some tough times there for a while. But, you know, like, like I always say about Coach, it can never stay good all the time. Yeah. And so he went through a tough period. And then eventually, because of uh, who he was and how big he was at the school, he eventually left. And he won over 100 games. At four different schools. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, be- and people used to question his coaching. I think that's pretty good as a coach. My, you know, one of the biggest fights I had with Coach Altai was he wanted to be in the Hall of Fame. I said, Coach, if you make it, it's great. If you're not, you you're still a Hall of Fame. You've had a Hall of Fame career. And eventually, he got in and gave one of the all-time great speeches. He really did. He really wanted that Hall of Fame because of what you just said in many ways. There was always this discussion about Lefty. Great recruiter, okay coach. Of course, the wins, you know, completely negate that argument. When he left coaching, he was behind uh, Adolph Rupp, Bobby Knight, and Dean Smith when he left coaching from Georgia State uh, in the early 2000s. But there was always that. You know, he didn't get to a national, he didn't win a national championship, didn't get to a final four, you know, signed, you know, four number one players, signed you out of the state of North Carolina right under the, you know, the nose of of all of the the tobacco road schools. 
And I, I always felt that that was a, an unfair knock. And I had Tom McMillan on the radio show yesterday, and he said the same thing. He said Lefty was a very good strategist and a very good preparation coach. You know, we, we, we the years that Lenny Mack and myself, that was our, probably our best year. Yeah. And remember, we lost to North Carolina State. Yeah, of course. In the finals, and we couldn't play another game because yep. only one year had to win the conference tournament. Right. So the next year they changed the rule for us. Yep. And then one year we went to the final, we were going to the final four, and then we played Providence, who at that time had one of the best teams in the country, too, with Dave Javits. Right. Marvin Barnes. And then we lost to Louisville. Yeah, man. We lost to Louisville when they had a great team with Junior Bridgman, Wesley Cox. Uh, Phil Bond, and they went to the Final Four, and the guy Rex Morgan missed the free throw that would have won them the national championship. Right, lost to UCLA. So, you know, yeah, in the yeah, semis. Yeah, right. So we we were there, and every year we had, uh, but our best teams, North Carolina State, had just as much talent. And we lost in double over, I think it was overtime. I, I don't remember the game like I used to, but that game in 73, 74, the final ACC game that was double overtime. It was it was one overtime, still considered to be one of the greatest games in NCAA you know, history, 103 to 100. Many people who were there that night, I remember as a kid watching it and being devastated. And, you know, you guys were – Probably you were ranked fourth, but you were probably the second best team in the country if UCLA wasn't, and you would have been in well, the Final Four that year. To, we, we didn't go to the NIT. I know you. You, we you didn't right. play another game, and we were ranked fourth or fifth that year yep. because of the four teams that went to the Final Four. Right. That that game and that team was your chance, but you know the next year when you guys went, we had Brad Davis as a freshman. And you went with something which was unique, right, in college basketball, which was a three-guard offense. That wasn't something that was done a lot. That's correct. So we added Brad, and we had a three-guard. But before I go to Brad in those years there, remember we went out to play UCLA. Yeah, in 73-74. And we lost that game 64-65. And we were all trying our best to be on the collision course to beat them. But in order to get there, we were going to have to beat State. And State ended up beating us in the finals again and went on and won it. So there are a couple of things, and we talked about this, um, I think, uh, in, in kind of remembering Lefty. Mm-hmm. So for those that, that haven't heard it, in 1973, Maryland was preseason the number three or four team in the country. UCLA was on a long winning streak with Bill Walton uh, at, at center going into his senior year. And because Maryland had said, and Lefty had said, we're going to become the UCLA of the East, they scheduled this made-for-TV game to kick off that season at Pauley Pavilion. And Maryland lost 65-64. But I'm going to ask you, do you remember the chance that you guys had down one at the end of that game and what happened? Mac and I were going to run a pick and roll on the side. And Pete Turgovich tipped the ball from behind me. And the guy who eventually became, his name was Keith Wilkes at the time. Yeah. Eventually turned into Jamal Wilkes. Right. 
gave the ball to Pete Turkovich, and that's how Mac and I had one of the worst games. The two of us had one of the worst, our two worst games of the year that year. Yeah. That game. Lenny played great. Lenny Elmore had a great game against the balls. But uh, Tommy Lee Curtis and those guys outplayed Mac and us at the rest of them. But that was a good game. And i tell you how they got us, as you remember. That was the first time I ever saw people when they, they introduced our team. All of the stands at the lower section had newspapers. And when they introduced us, they acted like they didn't even know we were in the arena. <laughs> they were reading newspapers. Yeah. They put the newspapers over their faces that time. And I think that had an effect on us. Yeah, I I had Billy Packer on the show before he passed away a couple of years ago, and I didn't realize he actually called that game, I think maybe with Dick Enberg, but that's beside the point. The thing that he reminded me of was this, and I don't know if you remember it. So after you guys lost the ball there at the end, there was a foul as the buzzer went off, and they were going to send UCLA to the line to shoot free throws, but Lefty ran to the scorer's table and said, the game's over, the game's over, because he wanted you guys to lose by a point, not by two or three points. Do you remember that? <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> that's what... I don't remember that. But that's not all the coaches out of his mind. <laughs> I, I, remember, I remember we played in the Golden uh they had a game where Phil, I don't know if you remember this guy named Phil Smith. He was like, he and I were the best two guards in the country. And we okay. played each other. We played San Francisco in the Golden Gate Cable Car Class. Okay. And we played the fight, and they wouldn't let us in. Was this the, the Phil Coach Smith that ended in. up playing for the Warriors? Yeah, he and I played together for the yeah. Warriors. Okay, Phil yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. So, like, so we could in. So Lester says, we can't get in. We won't play in this game. Man, you should have seen those people. Where Leslie had a bravado about him that gave you, if you played for him, confidence. And if you did, would you would want to play for him. So wait, what happened? So you got to the game in San Francisco, and, and what did Lefty say? And we had to go in a certain door, and we were late. And Coach said, well, I can't go in this door. I'm not, we're not going to play. <laughs> they said, what? So we're not playing. Get back on the bus, guys. We're going on back. Man, those people moving doors left and right to get us in. Coach was the best. He threw me out of practice one day because whenever we got ready to play uh, Carolina, we would practice long. And one day he, um, we were going to, and so whenever they went to the four corners, it was like we were going to go to the zone. And I, I used to have to say, gather and get back in. So you know, I'd have enough for president. And I went real smart at gather. He told me, gather the fuck out the gym. He threw me out the gym the day before the game and then called me the next morning make sure I was okay. I said, man, Jesus Christ. But wait, he wait, I, I, I missed that. So what 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 were you when you were practicing against the four corners? You you said we I would have called I would say gather. We would come back in, okay, huddle and go back to a zone. Uh. And so I said, gather to come back in. We've done it like ten times. I just said, gather. He just said, man, gather the hell out the gym. <laughs> and so, and so, he was unbelievable. Um, those games, was those games against Carolina and NC State were obvious. You know, in the last 
25, 30 years, you know, Duke has really been the rival. You know, for Gary's years, it was Duke. But for you guys, it was NC State and Carolina. Yes. You know, for one-third, for about three weeks, North Carolina State was number one. We were number two or three. Our Carolina was two or three for almost three weeks in the season. The, all three ACC and teams at the top. Wow. All, and, then, and then, and that's what ACC was, 18 conference. Yeah. Seven. No, seven. When, it was seven. Not seven, yeah. seven. And then when you lost the state, you would drop to four or five. <laughs> that's crazy. But now people don't realize out of, on those three teams, there was almost 20 pros out of the three teams. Yeah. Mitch Kupchak. Bobby Jones. Walter Davis. Walter Davis. Phil Ford. Phil Ford. Yeah. John Cuse. Tommy Burroughs. David Thompson. Monty Tao. Mo Rivers. And you remember a guy named uh, Stoddard. Phil Stoddard. The, pit- the pitcher. The pitcher. Baseball for the, yeah. for the uh, Orioles. Orioles. Yeah, for the Orioles, exactly. And then Clemson had Skip Wise. Tree Rawlings. Skip Wise, that name always comes up from Baltimore. From Baltimore, from Baltimore as, he was yeah, as one of the great the talents of all time. Yes, yes, absolutely. Was David Thompson the greatest player that you played against ever in college? Yes, we just couldn't stop him when we played him. It's just those heartbreaking losses. And it would be like, um, you know, Tom Roy people would... People don't realize, you know, now because of his age and where he was, people don't realize he was 6'3". Yeah. And could jump out the gym. And back then you couldn't dunk, but they got photos of the number 44 over the rim. And, you know, he won a couple of scoring titles at the Denver Nuggets. Yeah. Yeah, he was he was so good in the ABA and... You know, there's that famous, you know, him and Gervin on the fat last day of the regular season when yes. he when when Thompson, yes. Thompson went for 73 and and then the Iceman needed like 58 and he got 63 for the scoring title. Um, so I wanted to ask you specific to Lefty as a recruiter, how did he get you out of North Carolina? Um, because you really were the first player that he kind of plucked right out of you know, uh, of the of, of North Carolina with all four of those schools highly interested in you? Well, I, I wanted to play tennis, and I don't think I was going to be allowed to play tennis at Carolina. I had to play the basketball or tennis. And you got to remember, in North Carolina tennis, I never lost a set in high school tennis. Three years. So I wanted to play tennis, and I asked Coach, I said, first of all, Coach, and then I talked about George Carl. I said, if I'm good enough to beat out George Carl, will I play? Uh, you won't be able to beat out George Carl. And I said, Cody, I said, Coach, if you, he ain't left and said, hell, son, if you're good enough, you'll play. I'm not worried about that. And if you want to play tennis, you can play tennis too. <laughs> That's where I'm going. <laughs> and then he walked in my house, and he walked right to the icebox and got a soda, sat down, and took he passed, would call my parents three or four times a year. Really? To this day. 
Wow. How so? They they were sold. And Your you know, parents had, were sold on Lefty. Yeah, and when he had his stroke about a, two Sundays ago, yeah, he couldn't talk, and I talked to him for about thirty minutes. Uh, Pammy's family called me, and we talked for about thirty minutes, and we had talked to each other about being pallbearers at each other's funeral, <laughs> and um. I'm going to go down for his doing when they have that, but Lefty was one of a kind. He, uh, his recruiting, he would do anything and tell you what you needed to know. But when he needed to be strong, he was also strong enough for his players. Um, but that when he came to visit you, people always said that left the parents always fell in love with Lefty when he walked into their home. Was it the same with your parents? Yes, you know he's bald here, he's about six four, six four. And but see, we knew Coach. He went to Duke University. Yeah. And for my dad and my family, you know what he did in North Carolina with Mike Malloy, blacks at that time, and then the recruitment of Charlie Scott. See, Charlie Scott made Coach take Mike Malloy. So, Charlie, whenever Coach was going to look at a player, Charlie Scott would ride down to Davidson to tell Coach to help Coach see if he was good enough. So, Lefty had such a great name in North Carolina because you got to remember back then, integration had just happened. Sure. He was so much more. I mean, we talk about Midnight Madness and we talk about all the other things that he did, but what he did off the court culturally was just as important. I think that's so interesting because, you know, when Charlie Scott didn't go to Davidson and instead chose to go to the University of North Carolina to integrate um, North Carolina, Dean Smith gets so much credit for that, deservedly so, for integrating, um, you know, uh, the sports at the University of North Carolina. And Dean Smith obviously had a huge conscience and was incredibly progressive thinking. But I don't know that people think of Lefty that way. But to your point, so when Charlie Scott decided not to go to Davidson, instead to go to North Carolina, where, by the way, he beat Lefty in the Elite Eight with a shot at the buzzer at Cole Fieldhouse to go to the Final Four, um, he recruited Mike Malloy, uh, who was uh, a player. Where Was he playing in North Carolina, or was he out of a different area? He was out of a different era. Okay. And, you know, it's funny. We were talking today. Charlie called me today to talk to him. And Charlie told me, he said, look, I said, Mike. And he said, Coach is the reason. I, he said, because Davidson was so far off the beaten road that that's why I didn't go there. Right. Because, see, Charlie, my high school, I saw Charlie Scott play. Lefty was in my gym when Charlie, when Hillside, the Hillside High School beat Lawrenberg 104-106, and Charlie Dean Smith and all of those were at that game. Wow. And that's when I fell out with the great Scott, with Charlie. And, uh, and, he, and so for me, when Coach got him, Lefty was like, uh, Lefty, Dean Smith was the name, but Lefty was also such a innovator. But Davidson, at that time, was ranked ahead of Carolina and all of them. You remember that? <laughs> yeah. They were... They were the coach had them ahead because Will Hetzel and uh, 
Dick Snyder, all of them play for left. Yeah. I mean, and people really forget the coaches that coach put in the league. Terry Holland. Yep. Who played for him. Uh, you know, played and Joe coached Hurd for him at Davidson. Yep. Yeah, and Joe Hunter got in the coaching. Yep. Howard White is a big part of Nike. George Raveling. And uh, George Raveling was the first black coach in yep. the ACC. Yeah. Yeah, Le- lefty. lefty hired the first black assistant coach in the ACC, George Raveling, who obviously went on to, you know, he was one of the. I mean, I I, I yeah. think about the and, Hall and, of. And I get it, and, and, and I get it, man. But you know what? Really, he got like like I told Coach when the uh, Lynn Bias incident happened, yeah. and he, uh, you know, Coach had begun to have some bad years. And not the years that we've been. And I told him, you can't stay on top forever. And your run was a long time. And so, you know, eventually people, you know, you, you either, coaches always hired to be fired. They're not hired to be there for long. So, I mean, coach, coach did, I mean, that, that was an awful time. And then, you know, at that time, our league in the early 80s was all about drugs and alcohol. In that period of time, and so he got a lot. He got a lot of criticism and things like that. And as you know, things happen on people's watches. And so, so you. But he got through it, and then he just kept moving forward. But one of his proudest moments, you know, was seeing Gary Williams win the national championship football. Yeah. I, you know, I think you can speak to this maybe better than than I or anybody else can. I don't know that Gary and Lefty were ever super close, um, but uh, you know, Chuck ended up being on Gary's staff there for a while, Chuck Drizel. Um, But you're saying that that Lefty was super proud when Gary won the national championship. Yeah, he was very very pleased for him. You know, obviously anybody who has a legacy, what a legacy was. I remember he really hated to see Barlin leave the ACC. Right. We all did. Uh, and it was for basketball, but Barlin left because of football and the money that it could basically generate. So, you know, I, I got why he left. But he was absolutely the best. He and Gary, you know, uh, uh, some of the things aren't meant for you. And, you know, and like I told Coach, Coach, Coach was a fighter. And it just wasn't your time to win a championship at Mount. And, you know, he put a lot of pros in the league. You do what you can. You have a different attitude as you get older. But, you know, as you as you know, when you're going through the middle of it, you're in the middle of the fight. And, you know, it's hard to let go of things that were so good to you. Do you think? But Lefty, he got through that, that period of time and he got through it and, I think he always felt that was going to keep him from the Hall of Fame. And I just said, you always make the Hall of Fame. Yeah. But see, the Hall of Fame to me is so political anyway. <laughs> it is not judged on the, it's not like it was years ago. You can almost pay your way into the Hall of Fame now. Do you think that if Moses had come to Maryland, if, if Utah didn't give him all that money and he had played at Maryland, that you guys would have won the title? Let me, t- let me tell you this story. So Moses was my roommate for one night. It was one night. And Lefty put him with put him with me to make him stay because I did all the recruiting the most. I drove to Petersburg nine or ten times a year, 
and Moses wouldn't even let us play in the picture. Me and Mo Howard and Owen Brian guys would ride down there to go see him and go get. He'd hide from us, and I said, "Cause we're not getting this guy. This guy ain't going to Marla." And so Howard White stayed down, and Howard moved down there for three weeks. Left <laughs> <laughs> the So we would ride down there three and a half hours to play pickup and do it, and he wouldn't pick us. He wouldn't pick none of us. We'd have to, we didn't even play in the pickup game. And then when the games ended, he wouldn't even hang out with us. He'd either give us the time. I said, Coach, I ain't going down there no more. Mo ain't coming. And then Moses called me and told me he was going to mother. I almost fell out of the chair. Because, <laughs> you know, he, everybody thought he was going to San Diego State. Because Moses lived in a one-room house. In Petersburg. Yeah. I think, and so, you, you know, you didn't think. And, you know, Moses averaged 32 points. 13, 17 rebounds and 13 blocks a game. Crazy. Would you have won the national and, championship and, 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 and wait a minute, with him? And, 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 and never had a play call. <laughs> because he, <laughs> he, 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 he just he was a relentless offensive rebounder. Yeah, and, and, and I kept saying, now you think you're going to be able to have And then he woke up because at that time, uh, David Falk, was representing me for my tennis, right? Uh-huh. And so Mo said, I-, I think I'm going to the pros, Luke. I'm, 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 I'm not going to college. I said, well, Mo, we got to go class. He said, no, no, no. I said, well, if you're going to go, let me drive you down here to David Falk. And let me t-. So I drove them down there, and they sent me back to school. <laughs> and Moses went to the pros. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. And I said, well, what about me? <laughs> no, 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 no. And they get and the guy who took him was a guy by the name of Tom Nasalki. Yeah, took him with the Utah Stars. Yeah. Well, when I came out of school, Houston Rockets. Tom Nasalki was a head coach. Just got named the head coach of the Houston Rockets. <laughs> small, such he a small traded, world. Well, wait a minute. He traded to get the first pick to take you to take me because I was all set to go to Milwaukee at four, and he traded the pick to get the number one pick and got me and told me by Christmas we'll have Moses. And then I then I understood how very good Moses Malone was. Such such great stories, but if Moses had made it more than one night at Maryland before Utah paid him all that money, would you guys went to the Elite Eight without him? Would you have won the national championship that year in '75? We'd have been really close. We'd have been really close. The Bill Walton stuff is really unbelievable. Bill Walton was a hell of a college player, man. That that team was really good. They yeah. were really really good, and we would have been really good. I I think so. But, you know, you just don't know. But Moses, I mean, our defense would have been unbelievable. Moses was unbelievable. All right. he, he was the fastest guy in Houston. He was the fastest guy on our team. He outran everybody. Everybody sees him in Philadelphia when he put on all that weight yeah. and, you know, grew up. But Moses was the quickest guy in our league. Moses, Moses average, you know, we, he and I actually in Houston started the alley-oop. <laughs> well, David Thompson perfected it a few years earlier. No, 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 no. I'm talking about, but the alley oop he got was like different than Moses and I got. Moses, we would catch centers leaning down, and I would throw the ball over his head, over the guy leaning down. So 
So what Moses did the first year, I led the league in assists, right? Yeah. You know what he did the second year? He would take the lob, hit it off the backboard, <laughs> right? Yeah. Make it an offensive rebound for him. <laughs> it still wouldn't a be an assist. For me, and then put it back in <laughs> to get three points. Ah, that's great. That is so funny because I think people, <laughs> so you, you, yeah. You can, so, you know, Moses kept setting these offensive rebound records, remember? Yeah, of course. That was we always, it was always his rep is that Moses would throw it up against the backboard two or three times, catch it, and then finally score, and he'd have three offensive rebounds and two points. But that took the Absolutely. assist away from you. That's funny. Yeah, that all is, the time. That is so funny. So, um, look, I've taken up so much of your time. It's so much appreciated. But I, I did want to ask you this, because something that, that uh, McMillan said and I've heard from others that you would that that players just always heard from Lefty over the years that you guys stayed in touch with him that sometimes he would just call pick up the phone and call was that the same with you I told you I talked to him a week yeah, ago yeah right but during he would go to Durham he would go to Durham and visit my parents my dad's 103 oh my god and coach and George his wife would go visit my dad still Call me during the course of the year. You know, people don't remember. Lefty hired me to be the assistant coach when all his coaches left to try to get Ralph Sampson. And Ralph eventually <laughs> went to Virginia. But we were right there at the end yeah. to get him. And, you know, coaches always – you you remember Larry Gibson? Of course. Yeah, he, had, he beat Notre Larry Dame. Gibson had a, yeah, Larry Gibson had a serious illness and became an invalid before he passed. Oh, and Coach raised money for him. He called all of us to give money and give support to Larry Gibson. Wow. I mean... He had a number of his former players of people who would come on hard times. He would call and we, you know, we, we don't get the credit for the Carolina family or the Duke Brotherhood, but we're all still really, really close. I talked to old Senator. You know who the Senator is, don't you? Um, McMillan. Yeah, Senator Zahn. Yeah. <laughs> and then Lenny used to be Michael Jackson because he used to think he could sing like Michael Jackson. <laughs> and talk to Bass, Steve Shepard, all the time. And every time I'm in Philly, I talk to Mo. I mean, we talk on a pretty regular basis. Uh, Porak was a dentist. And I used to talk to Billy Hahn all the time. Oh, yeah. Right. Now, wait a minute. Now, Billy Hahn's mom and dad came to see him at a Christmas. And I'll let you go. Cause no, no, no. Go. This is they great. Came, I, came, I, came, I don't want to stop. Billy Hahn's parents drove from Indiana to see him play on the weekend at a Christmas tournament. And we had won our first game. And it was the last game of Christmas. And it was about eight minutes to go in the game. <laughs> and Billy gets up to put his own stuff in the game. <laughs> what? Coach <laughs> goes crazy. Wait, what happened? So wait a minute. So Billy, Billy, so, no, Billy's parents and his parents. He wanted his parents to see him play because right. they had driven all that time to see him play. So as the game was winding down, he got up to put his own stuff in. <laughs> and Coach sat there and looked at him. Coach was one 
Other well, yeah, but, but, but I remember when we lost the state. You remember when he put his foot through the jail? Oh yeah, I mean the stomping on, on the sideline and, and and all this stuff. That you know, you reminded me of the hail to the chief. They people they would play hail to the chief when Lefty would walk out of the out of the tunnel at Cole onto the floor. Um, it was it was wild. Uh, it was. And and I love to hear about the brotherhood and the fact that all of you stayed close. I mean, I know that happens yeah, with Jap, uh, Jap, Jap Trimble. Remember Jap? Yeah, of course. He's living in Vegas, he's an FBI. Uh, he's with the FBI. So all our guys have gone on to do things, or be a part of stuff. And you know, it's just real funny. Coach never gets a lot of that credit. You know, Coach, you could go on for Coach. Coach did a lot of good. And you know, I, I, you know, it's it's um, he was a blessing. You don't really appreciate him until you really now see all the things. His favorite line used to be, "The harder I work, the lucky I get." Always one of his go-to lines for sure. Um, this was so much fun. This has been such a pleasure. I can't tell you how much I appreciate. Uh, the time you've given. I think a lot of people are going to be really happy to hear your voice and to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much for doing this. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. One of the greatest to ever do it at the University of Maryland and in the ACC in college basketball, period. John Lucas, uh, everybody. I enjoyed that a lot. By the way, speaking of Terps Hoops, they got a commitment today from five-star center Derek Queen, 6'10", one of the top players in the country. This is a huge recruiting get for Kevin Willard. All right, back tomorrow with Tommy.